Welcome to the November 11th, 2021 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today, we'll learn more about the application of machine learning in molecular subclassification and prognostication of acute myeloid leukemia, or AML, discuss the role of aging bone marrow in leukemia progression, and learn more about the challenges in treating bleeding disorders of unknown cause. Our first topic examines data presented in the Blood article entitled, Machine Learning Integrates Genomic Signatures for Subclassification Beyond Primary and Secondary Acute Myeloid Leukemia by Hassan Awada and Yaroslaw Maciejewski from the Cleveland Clinic Tausig Cancer Institute and colleagues. Traditional classification of AML is largely based on morphology, even though morphologically defined subtypes often fail to correlate with the pattern of genetic mutations. Nevertheless, experts postulate that somatic mutations, or cytogenetic abnormalities, serve as the driver lesions in the large majority of AML patients. Until now, the combinatorial complexity of these genetic changes has hindered the identification of distinct genomic subtypes. In the current study, investigators employed advanced machine learning methods to subclassify AML based on distinct genomic markers with the goal of providing personalized prognostication irrespective of the clinicopathological information. They analyzed targeted next-generation sequencing data from a large multicenter cohort of 6,788 patients with AML, using both standard supervised approaches and unsupervised machine learning methods. A simple machine learning algorithm, the Bayesian latent class analysis, was applied to better capture the complex interaction of high-dimensional genomic features present in AML patients and to identify novel AML subgroups. In addition, gene sequencing techniques were employed to identify new variants in patient cohorts from different centers. Machine learning uncovered four major subgroups of patients based on genomic clustering, which were then assessed for prognostic value. Cluster 1 had a median survival of 34 months and was characterized by a normal karyotype AML enriched for mutations in NPM1, DNMT3A, FLT3ITD, and IDH2R140 mutations with absence of ASXL1, EZH2, TP53, and RUNCS1 mutations. Cluster 2 had a median survival of 26 months and was characterized by biallelic mutations in CEBPA, IDH2, R172K, with absence of NPM1, ASXL1, RUNCS1, and TP53 mutations. Cluster 3 had a median survival of 15.8 months and was characterized by SF3B1, SRSF2, and EZH2 mutations and cluster 4 had the worst survival, with a median of 9 months, and contained patients with complex karyotypes and mutations in TP53. Cross-validation studies resulted in a remarkably high 97% accuracy of the model. 
Interestingly, the proposed model was not effective in separating de novo and secondary AML among the four clusters. Also, in line with previous reports, NPM1 and TP53 mutations contributed greatly to creating the lower and higher risk phenotypes corresponding to the clinical survival risk, respectively. However, the highest cumulative accuracy was only achieved by the incorporation of the status of additional genomic lesions, including RUNCS1, ASXL1, SRSF2, and DNMT3A mutations, minus 5 or deletion 5Q, minus 17 or deletion 17P, and others. The authors shared their model as an open-source online resource entitled AML Genomic Subclassification and noted that it may be used as a complementary tool with current classifications. Taken together, these data demonstrate that machine learning was effective in defining novel genomic AML subclasses and that traditional pathomorphological classifications may be less reflective of overlapping pathogenesis in this heterogeneous disease. In an accompanying commentary, Daniel Thomas from the University of Adelaide in Australia points to an urgent need for complementary prognosis classifiers in AML and notes that the current study elegantly demonstrates the power of machine learning to reveal previously unrecognized subgroups of AML. He further emphasizes the importance of associations that emerged between specific mutations and different clusters such as the presence of IDH2R140 in cluster 1 and RUNCS1 in cluster 3, adding that RUNCS1 was recently included as a provisional disease in the World Health Organization classification. Thomas points to model restriction to only four clusters as a limitation of the current study and notes that future work will need to focus on prospectively validating the uncovered groupings and studying their underlying biology. He is optimistic that machine learning classifications will soon find application in many other cancer types and that different classifiers will be identified for targeted therapies beyond 7 plus 3 and allogeneic transplantation. Those patients who do not harbor obviously good or bad biomarkers are expected to benefit the most from this approach, he concludes. Next up, we'll discuss the findings from the blood article entitled The Age of the Bone Marrow Microenvironment Influences B-Cell Acute Lymphoblastic Leukemia Progression via CXCR5 and CXCL13 by Constanza Zanetti from the Georg Speer House Institute for Tumor Biology and Experimental Therapy in Frankfurt, Germany, and colleagues. B-Cell Acute Lymphoblastic Leukemia, or BALL, accounts for approximately 25% of all pediatric cancers. It is the most common blood cancer in children, whereas chronic myeloid leukemia, or CML, is more common in adults. This difference in the incidence of BALL and CML in children versus adults is not clearly understood, although aging is associated with expansion of myeloid cells and myeloid-based stem cells. The potential contribution of other factors including the bone marrow microenvironment, has not been studied in detail. The bone marrow microenvironment is a complex system of hematopoietic and non-hematopoietic cells that regulates blood cell production. Studies conducted in murine models of leukemia 
have shown that disrupting the interactions between the microenvironment and leukemic cells can delay disease onset. Furthermore, other studies have shown that an old bone marrow microenvironment exerts a selection pressure on certain hematopoietic clones, thus contributing to the development of myeloid leukemias. The current study aimed to assess whether a young bone marrow microenvironment specifically promotes the development and progression of BALL. To achieve this goal, investigators employed murine models of BCR-ABLE1-driven BALL in young and old mice. Non-5-fluorouracil pretreated bone marrow from six-week-old mice was transduced with a BCR-ABLE1-expressing retrovirus into young, three-to-four-week-old versus old, more than 1.5 years, unirradiated recipient mice. Emerging BALL leukemias progressed faster in young versus old mice. In vivo confocal immunofluorescence of the bone marrow showed greater motility of BALL cells transplanted into young mice and their localization closer to the endosteum compared to the old mice, suggesting that the bone marrow microenvironment differentially affects the behavior of BALL cells in young versus old mice. In contrast, Transplanting BCR-ABLE1-infected 5-FU pretreated cells into irradiated mice, which favors development of CML, led to leukemias which progressed more slowly in young versus old mice. To look at the role of the microenvironment in influencing leukemia progression, the investigators focused on marrow macrophages, using molecular profiling to decipher any differences between young and old cells. Previous studies have shown that different subtypes of macrophages have unique functions in regulating stromal cells, erythrocyte maturation, and hematopoietic stem cells. The authors found that young macrophages produced more CXCL13, a known B-cell chemoattractant, than old macrophages, and that its receptor, CXCR5, was more highly expressed in BALL cells transplanted into young recipients. Deficiency of CXCR5 on BALL initiating cells was associated with prolonged survival of leukemic mice. In co-culture experiments with F480 positive, CD169 positive, and CX3CR1 negative macrophages from young and old mice, Inhibition of CXCL13 reduced the growth of BALL cells co-cultured only with young macrophages, while recombinant CXCL13 increased BALL cell expansion. In addition, pretreatment of BALL initiating cells with CXCL13 accelerated the progression of BALL. Furthermore, the authors found that systemic depletion of macrophages and other phagocytes reduced leukemic burden, and prolonged survival only in young mice. Interestingly, increased concentrations of CD68-positive macrophages and CXCL13 protein were found in bone sections from pediatric patients compared to adult BALL patients. Also, retrospective analyses of data from published patient cohorts revealed that low CXCR5 levels correlated with better outcomes in certain subsets of BALL. Taken together, these findings indicate that the age of the bone marrow microenvironment, and specifically bone marrow macrophages, influence the leukemia progression.
In addition, presented data points to a potential utility of the CXCR5-CXCL13 axis as a prognostic marker and novel therapeutic target in BALL. In an accompanying commentary, Zhu Zhang from Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center and Daniel Lucas from the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine acknowledged that the study successfully demonstrated the role of the aging bone marrow microenvironment in BALL progression. They further note that the experiments point to a key role for the CXCL13 CXCR5 axis in BALL, with the pathway clearly being functional primarily in the young bone marrow microenvironment. According to Zhang and Lucas, study findings raise exciting new questions about the potential role of CXCL13-producing macrophages in the young bone marrow and the loss of CXCL13 production during aging. They believe that finding the answers to these questions will be critical in understanding whether this macrophage pathway can be therapeutically blocked without adverse effects on hematopoiesis. Lastly, we will review a report published in Blood entitled How I Treat Bleeding Disorder of Unknown Cause by Ross Baker from Murdoch University in Australia and James O'Donnell from the Irish-Australian Blood Collaborative Network. In this interesting report, Baker and O'Donnell outline an approach for the diagnosis and management of patients with bleeding disorder of unknown cause, or BDUC, by discussing three informative patient cases. Research to date has shown that the majority of patients referred to hematologists for assessment of a possible bleeding tendency will be diagnosed with BDUC while only about 30% will be diagnosed with a specific bleeding disorder, such as von Willebrand disease or a platelet function defect. BDUC is a broadly defined category of bleeding disorders that lacks standard diagnostic criteria. It is a diagnosis by exclusion. However, some patients with BDUC display bleeding tendencies comparable to those seen in patients with von Willebrand disease or platelet function defects. The first step in diagnosing BDUC is objective assessment of bleeding risk using a standardized bleeding assessment tool, or BAT. The higher BAT scores are used to distinguish between patients with mild versus serious mucocutaneous bleeding. Patients with BDUC already account for more than 10% of registered patients in some hemophilia centers, and recent studies have shown that BDUC is being diagnosed with increasing frequency in female patients who present with heavy menstrual bleeding or postpartum hemorrhage. Despite the prevalence of this condition, diagnosis and management of patients with BDUC represent significant clinical challenges. Contributing to this problem is the lack of consensus regarding the clinical and laboratory criteria necessary for a formal BDUC diagnosis. In the current study, the authors discuss the challenges associated with diagnosing and managing BDUC using three clinical cases. One case of initial diagnostic evaluation, one case of BDUC management during surgery, and one during pregnancy. In discussing the first case, the authors stress the importance of accurate quantification of bleeding phenotype in patients with unusual bleeding history, since it represents the primary determinant upon which a diagnosis of BDUC is reached. 
An objective assessment of the bleeding phenotype may be performed using the BAT score endorsed by the International Society on Thrombosis and Hemostasis, where a normal bleeding score is considered less than 4 in males and less than 6 in females. In the initial evaluation of these patients, the authors remind physicians to carefully examine the nature and frequency of bleeding, possible medication and supplement use, and to look for signs and symptoms of collagen vascular disorders and inflammatory diseases. A detailed family history is essential to raise suspicion of inherited disorders. The authors recommend an extensive panel of initial laboratory studies to rule out thrombocytopenia, thrombocythemia, MDS, paraproteinemias, and a variety of other disorders associated with excessive bleeding. The panel also includes recommended laboratory tests for routine coagulation parameters, platelet function, and assays for VWF, factors 8, 9, and 11. Depending on results, the authors recommend secondary laboratory tests for rare clotting factor deficiencies, less common platelet defects, and fibrinolysis. In cases where initial hemostasis evaluation is normal, measurement of individual clotting factor assays is recommended. If all blood tests come back normal, the patient is diagnosed with BDUC. In discussing the second case, the authors note that estimating bleeding risk and monitoring therapy in BDUC patients undergoing elective procedures poses challenges. Namely, minimal evidence is available to guide hemostatic treatment for BDUC patients undergoing surgical procedures, but limited data suggests higher risk of periprocedural bleeding in patients who are not treated. Treatment options that have been used to date include antifibrinolytic agents, such as tranexamic acid or aminocaproic acid, DDAVP, platelet transfusion, and recombinant activated factor 7. In discussing the third case, the authors emphasize that women with BDUC are at increased risk for developing postpartum hemorrhage and that the lack of evidence continues to pose significant challenges in the management of this group of patients. Potential treatment options for pregnant women include tranexamic acid, DDAVP, platelet transfusion, and recombinant activated factor 7, with tranexamic acid used widely to prevent postpartum hemorrhage in women with mild bleeding disorders. In conclusion, the authors note that patients commonly have significant bleeding phenotypes despite normal hemostasis laboratory findings, and that a formal BDUC diagnosis is important to recognize the significance of the bleeding problem in each case. They point to the need for additional studies to address the underlying pathobiological mechanisms in BDUC, as well as prospective studies to define optimal diagnostic approaches in both children and adult patients. The authors are optimistic that such studies will lay the groundwork for new insights about the safety and efficacy of treatment strategies for BDUC. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to www.bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.